Life is made up of moments, and collection of moments makes an experience. And experience is the fabric of life, right? So our experiences are what bind us together and, and kind of create what I call this experience DNA. It's how we see the world and how we're, um, how we're moving through the world. So I think if you can find ways to make really great experiences and meaningful experiences through these apps, that's what allows them to win. Welcome to the Disruptware Podcast. Whether you're just starting up or scaling your software business, we interview the experts with ideas and strategies you can implement today. Now here's your host, Paul Clifford. Hi there, software entrepreneurs, and welcome to the show. Now today I've got uh, an amazing interview with a guy called Chuck Longenecker, and Chuck is the founder of a company called Digital Telepathy. Now, for many of you who may not know who that is or what that is, essentially, this company is behind some of the most groundbreaking sites and personalities on the web today. So, for example, Tim Ferriss's sites, Neil Patel's sites, um, New Relic, a lot of tech startup sites, they all go to this company to talk about design. And the reason is that design and user experience is really, really at the core of everyone who works for this company. So Chuck's done an amazing job um, of getting everyone involved in the ethos of purist design. And we've got some great insights to share on the show. And instead of doing the show as a normal podcast from uh, Basecamp, what we decided to do, in fact, I jumped in the car and went down to his office to meet and greet some of his team in person. Let's get on with the show. Uh, let's meet Chuck. Obviously, some background noise because this is a live interview, but I, I really think you're going to get a huge amount out of it. Chuck, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on board. Really, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Good to be here. And, you know, we're in your, you know, fantastic office. I can see some really amazing talent around. And, you know, you've got, you know, what I can sense is like a real great culture of people like really fascinated and interested in design and in their work. So tell me a bit about yourself, Chuck. You know, when, when did you actually start? What got you into, you know, building this amazing company? Yes, yeah, love to tell you a little more about that. So I started DT uh, a good 13 years ago when I was 25, which is, if you do the math, you know how old I am now. <laughs> and um, I started it kind of on a whim. I got laid off from a startup in uh, 2000 that I was working at, and I had a little tiny severance. I think I had a $5,000 severance, and I said, I'm going to see how long I can stretch this and live on this, and what the hell, I'll start a company and kind of work on my own because I wasn't really fulfilled working for other people. People and uh, uh, somehow I'm still here. Uh, it was a really, really long road, but um, I, I think it was born out of my lack of fulfillment with the jobs I was currently doing or I was pr- uh, uh, doing in the past, which um, kind of stemmed from, you know, you go in, you do your work, you go home. You're not satisfied by what you're doing and you don't get to kind of see the fruits of your labor. You write a white paper and someone reads it and maybe they make a decision on it. Mm-hmm. And when, um, you know, the web started to, to increase in popularity, we got to, to make something and it was put on an IP address that anybody in the world could see. So even if you weren't successful for those sites, you could actually uh, have other people see the fruits of your labor, which was really fulfilling. And luckily, uh, the web actually took off. (laughs) At first, I was convincing people uh, that they they needed websites, which is kind of funny to think about now. And um, going to the local lead generation events, and you're just like sweating it. Um, And eventually, uh, you know, everything kind of picked up. And luckily, we, we embraced design. 
as what our core competency is and how to use design to, to create amazing experiences and grow businesses, specifically startups. So luckily, um, you know, everything that we've kind of followed our heart uh, and started doing um, started supporting us back yeah. um, with what the demands are. Now design is, is one of the most sought after elements of a service uh, that we can provide. So I think we got, we got lucky. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I couldn't be happier with how things happened. Do you know, I remember those days, you know, um, when the web really, in, in its infancy, you know, when I ask, I got involved in creating some sites as well and you, you'd show those to clients and all that and they'd be going yeah but so what you know what you know how's that going to benefit me how is that how's that going to generate leads you know and, and all those early conversations where you really had to sell a whole concept of having a website um, right. to these companies and of course obviously that really really took off yeah we used to have to fight for the budget from the white pages or the yellow pages yeah I mean what a ridiculous idea right. now uh, but you know at that time and we'd have some very progressive clients that are like I'm going to take a month off from the yellow pages and put it into the site and see if it could do more yeah, yeah. <laughs> and luckily we were able to pull that off and often you were actually selling to you know not even the marketing department it was still within IT yeah. You know, and yeah, uh, yeah. so they're amazing exactly. days, amazing days. But you know, obviously, you know, you, you started doing that, and um, you know, and where, where did you go on from there? So uh, from there, you know, we we started to learn that what our sweet spot was. Yeah. Uh, we you know we started off giving all kinds of different services, from hosting to email marketing um, to SEO, and you know, right when social media came out, we we jumped on that. We anything that someone would pay us for, <laughs> we would do for them. We'd figure it out, and then as we became more savvy, we realized we couldn't become phenomenal at any of these things yeah. as long as we kept doing them all. Yeah. So we focused in on design and specifically user experience and user interface. Uh, and then we looked to see where who had the greatest needs for this, right? And uh, the emerging startups that were building these products, um, inventing new technology, uh, had the greatest needs for these as well. And they were also the ones that were willing to be the riskiest. We like to be on the cutting edge of design. Yeah. And as we worked with bigger brands, they were more conservative. As we worked with startups, they were just willing to, to go for it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we're driven as designers by the work that we do and how exciting it is, not how big the budget is. Is per se, and also how many people we're potentially impacting and how we're impacting them. We want to create something new and put it out there that hasn't existed before, invent something more so than just create more of the same. Right. So that led us to specifically user interface, user experience for startups. Um, and as we got into that, it was so exciting. We got to meet all these entrepreneurs that had all these great ideas and we're, we're, we're satisfying their visions. We're like, hey, we want a little piece of that too. <laughs> so we had all our own ideas in house. And we decided to create a budget of time to start building stuff. And that was probably one of the, the best things we had done. It allowed us to go from what would be a kind of traditional interactive agency or company into a real product company. Mm-hmm. So we experienced all the pain and agony of figuring out what the product is, of getting it to scale, um, bringing on users, uh, monetizing, and then eventually going through acquisition. And that allowed us to kind of go to the phase that we're at now, which is we have a very um, startup-centric service offering we, we provide um, that is very agile, that kind of works based on objectives, not 
not on tasks, mm. on what we're accomplishing. So we don't take a scope. We don't, uh, we don't go through a normal technical spec. We just hit the ground running and help determine and iterate what the product actually is for, right. for our clients. And which, of course, could, uh, and your clients obviously understand that, that way of working as well, right? They have to, or else they won't work with us, and it's yeah. okay, right? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we have really frank, we don't have a sales team. We have very frank conversations. We we try to help people first, and if there's a good click, a good fit, they they understand the way we work, and usually it's a reflection of the way that they work, and so we just seamlessly work in there and kind of take over as their chief design officer within right. their company. Right, and and is that you know does some of that stem from like the whole lean sort of approach as well, really? You know, not, as you said, not to build out scopes and specs like that, but, you know, let's sort of mock something up, you know, let's see if that works and see what the reaction and the feedback is or customer development, as they'd call it in the lean world. But, you know, trying stuff out and then molding it and then changing it and then iterating and and then eventually. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we wanted to approach everything with a very common sense approach. when we first uh, found Eric Reese and his his writings, we're like, oh, "This is the way we've been thinking." And finally, someone organized it. You know, like we were so relieved. We're like, "Oh, good, we can we can just kind of follow what he's he's figured out." You know, as we were, we were doing uh, portions of it, uh, and fortunately, we got to work with Eric as well. So we better implement some of that lean <laughs> approach and methodology. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And and we look at it less like we're deciding to go lean, we're deciding to go agile, more and more so that let's go common sense. When someone comes to us to, to build or design something and they ask us how much it's going to cost, the answer is we have no idea, right? We don't even know that the approach that you're moving in is correct. We have to test. We have to learn. We have to communicate with uh, potential clients or, or, or customers or users, do that customer development, create the prototypes, iterate on the prototypes until we actually see some growth, and then we can go full, full bore into what the product's going to be. Or if we're um, modifying an existing product, there's so much digging quantitative, qualitative analysis that we need to learn from to determine what's the greatest path. And the whole thing, as Eric would say, is that startups are uncertain. You know, there's uncertainty everywhere. And so we kind of embrace that. And if we need to change, we need to pivot, then the way our model works, since it's just a recurring subscription, we can pivot on a dime. It doesn't matter, right? And it doesn't cost them any more money. Because you're not working within a fixed framework. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's what's allowed us, you know, aside from what we do on a services perspective, to keep building products. So we're able to carve a certain percentage out of our staff to build these products and continue to learn, continue to go through the agony um, and and get more and more ambitious with every product we build. Right. So, you know, as we're talking about products specifically, you know, one of your great products that you sold, didn't you, I think, to Crazy Egg was Hello Bar. And, you know, what, how was that born? You know, just come up with this idea one day and thought, hey, it would be really cool if I did this. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I have to give credit where credit's due. Matt from SitePoint had started Flippa. And Flippa, which is a website for selling websites, uh, had a little bar up at the top that they had hard-coded in. It's like, wow, that's that really grabs your attention, but doesn't take away from the experience of the site. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, you know, we were looking for an idea. We had kind of written on a whiteboard and said, we, the next thing we build, we want some, everybody else to look at and say, man, I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> we wanted to build something so simple because it's so hard to make things simple and so easy to make them complex, yeah. right? So um, we, we got this idea and we asked ourselves, okay, what, what's one thing you want, to, want someone to do on a website? A visitor comes to a website, what's the one thing that you want them to do? You got two, three, four, five seconds, right? And our theory was you want to deliver a, a simple message and a call to action. And where do you do that on a website? Well, it's kind of random, right? So you could put it in your nav, you could put it in the header, you can make a big red button, you can, you know, you can do all kinds of interruption kind of stuff, but the user's not going to be trained to look any place on the site. So we decided, uh, you know, the top area of the site and, and putting a toolbar up there that was unobtrusive and smart would be a great way to get attention, deliver that message and call to action, and then go away if you wanted it to go away. And so fortunately, uh, it did catch on. And so we spent, we actually spent a ton of time designing that little 33 pixel bar. You know, what, how does it look best on all these sites? We had a lot of different versions and we use an iframe uh, tool so we could, we'd actually have the bar and we bring in all these different sites and we try them on big sites and little sites and beautiful sites and ugly sites. And, you know, finally came to a point where um, we found something that, that looked great and then we had to go through the whole thing with color. Yeah. And strangely enough, we came up with the orange that actually worked well with everything as well. Yeah. I, do, I think, you know, the simplicity of it is, you know, what you just said, it's really hard to make something simple, you know, really easy to make it, you know, complicated. And I think that's something, I mean, I, I always struggle with that, I must admit, you know, and, you know, when you're building software, trying to keep the features out, trying to say no. Um, and, and when you look back at some success stories, like I think Buffer, for example, it's a very simple concept, you know, what they're doing, you know, in terms of the social sharing and, and scheduling and everything, um, but hugely successful. Um, so, you know, I guess, does that really, is that something you really instill within your team, you know, within the people who work with you as sort of one of your design ethos is for, for one yeah, of a better expression. Absolutely. We I mean clearly we can't claim that it originated from us. Dieter Rams it's one of his ten design principles, which is you know keeping things simple. Design is simple. Uh, but what we what we do instill specifically is this concept of betterment. And so if we walk around after this and you, you listen to some conversations, you're gonna hear people say betterment or make it better, right? And that's right. kind of our methodology is not just design this, design that, it's actually what's design do it makes things better. And the concept of betterment that has actually has, well, there's, there's a definition which is incremental improvements create exponential results. So if you make a few things better every day, you eventually get exponential results. There's a formula that we use internally that involves simplicity. And it's very simple, of course. Simple plus compelling minus friction. So if we go find friction, and friction is easy to find, and we don't look just at something that, that is friction. We look at friction that's affecting many, many people. Uh, and then we actually look a way, a, a, a way to either remove the friction or replace it with something simple and compelling. Simple because why make it complicated? That's not actually solving the problem. Simple is, uh, uh, adds to the, um, the almost emotional IQ of a user when they come to a site. They, they naturally will be able to understand how to use it. And then compelling is just that little delightful thing. Yeah. Compelling is a touchscreen over a, you know, a button membrane. Um, you know, something that just lights you up a little bit that that makes it feel a little bit good gives you a bit of positive feedback when you use it right and so that's obviously something you instill in your team when they're approaching design 
right? Correct. Yeah. And I guess that that's um, that's probably what makes or nowadays probably what makes or breaks an app to a certain extent. Do you think? Because you know when um, I, you know I've heard the term emotional design used a lot, and the the way I connect with that is that the the market in terms of products, you know, is quite saturated. It's very rare something completely new comes along, right? Um, so there's lots of Me Too products, but I think the ones that win are the ones that you know really draw you in because you just love to use them, you know. And so you know, I, I guess. And, and there's not necessarily a question here, but I'm just following your your thinking in terms of you know taking those or even that formula um, and applying it into design user experience is what creates the emotional design. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, that, that's definitely part of it, and and that equation works towards anything. It can work for manufacturing. It can work. You know, it doesn't have to be just design. And our goal is the, to be officers of betterment, creating betterment. No matter what we do, we happen to be doing design right now. That's our tool yeah. that we do it with now. And you know, to to branch on what you said as well uh, about those simple apps, maybe the better ones are the ones that win. You know, I think it's um, it's a little more than that as well. Is that Life is made up of moments, and collection of moments makes an experience. And experience is the fabric of life, right? So our experiences are what bind us together and, and kind of create what I call this experience DNA. It's how we see the world and how we're, um, how we're moving through the world. So I think if you can find ways to make really great experiences and meaningful experiences through these apps, that's what allows them to win. And so it's um, that magic, right? It's it's talking into your phone and having it t- you know, set, set directions for you. That's not complicated on the front end. It's incredibly complicated on the back end. But uh, that magic in that experience, it reduces all that friction and allows you to do something you couldn't have done in the past, right? And so I think that's that kind of aha moment you have with these apps. And even something like Flipboard, which you know came out a while ago, but I, I saw people buying iPads to use Flipboard. And they didn't invent RSS, or um, they didn't even curate the content that well. It just looked really good, and it was fun to flip through, right? And you could absorb it better. Right, as opposed to looking at Facebook and just a news feed and kind of then going page for page, you could actually have this more immersive experience. Yeah. So I think the experience is just like the, the, that one thing that defines us. It's, it's, a, it's a funny thing because it's hard to define an experience <laughs> in general yeah. and what is a good experience, um, but that's why we use all these customer development and, and lean tools <laughs> to validate our ideas, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess, you know, if you're talking, you know, and a lot of people, you know, listening to this will be, uh, you know, there's plenty looking to scale, but there's also people looking for that idea. You know, people looking who want to build a SaaS app or, or any, any software. Um, and, you know, what, what I tell a lot of people is don't try to find the unique idea. You know, they're very, very rare. Um, but, you know, find something that is working because then you know there's a market. And then work out, you know, how to make that better in some way. You know, can you offer anything along those lines in terms of advice to help people? You know, how would anyone look at something to try and, you know, make it, you know, create an app that's going to touch people in the way you describe? So I'm really big on um, your personal, like, higher purpose and values in life, right? And so 
one thing I warn people against is like, oh, look, there's a market opportunity over there. Let's go take that. Right? It's in the financial market. It's in the real estate market. But if you really don't give a shit about those markets, <laughs> you're not going to succeed. Or if you do, it's not going to be fulfilling for you. <laughs> so I'd say, you know, first look inward. Look what you love to do. Look what you're passionate about and where you want to make a difference. So, so, so um, that's kind of the, the first step. And so I love digital. I love experiences. I love design. I love, you know, all of these different aspects. And so that's the way I want to impact things. Um, and it's different for everybody. Some people are passionate about fitness. Some people are passionate about healthcare. Some people are passionate about travel, right? So I would start there. And then look out where the friction is. Where is there something that, that you can solve? Where is there something you can make better? And it can come from your personal experience, but you have to be careful with that, right? Because some very, very particular people have very particular habits and wants and needs, and that, that's a very small market. And uh, if you can identify what that problem is on a larger scale, and then you can use what your the third part is your skills to be able to fix it, right? So if you have competencies in those areas and you, you can see a way from the beginning to end, you know you're on the right track to yeah. fix something. Yeah. Now, executing that vision and, 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 and actually culminating it to, to a complete vision takes a long time. You have to peel back those layers. I feel like sometimes it takes me a couple years to peel back the layers to the, the pure essence of the idea and and I can truly execute it at that point. Yeah. Um, but you know, you're always you're always looking for it. You're always working on it every day. You're always kind of shaving off another layer. We have aha moments on our product film, and every day we're like, "Oh wait, it's this." <laughs> and then the next day, it's it's not something else, but it's more of that, right? It's it's even it's micro um, dialing things in right. to be more and more clear about what you're what you're going to do. And so I think putting those two together because it's a long and arduous road. So you got to be passionate about it. You want to affect a large group of people or else there's not a good chance of success, right? Uh, and then you want to be able to have these skills that you love to do every day. It's repetitive, mm. you know, motion every day to, to build a company. And so you have to be comfortable doing the same thing every day. Yeah, got it. And I think you t- touched on filament there for a second and, and to a certain extent, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's almost a case in point. You know, I think... You know, you've identified that there's all these websites where they're put, needing to put in plugins, do this, and bits of code to do that. Um, and you know, where you've come from is really, you know, these are these are the best plugins or bits of code that you need to improve your your traffic or your social or whatever in your site. And you've, you you're almost curating to a certain extent these little apps, but but where you're delivering is maybe using your term, reducing the friction and implementing them straight into your website. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. You know, I think we got lucky when we figured this Betterment thing out. (laughs) So the way we look at it is that on our services side, we're helping clients uh, make their business better with our services. And if we're not making their business better, our services should no longer be used, right? So that's that's our measure for um, uh, if we're creating impact and value for those customers. When we blog, we try to share what we've learned with everybody, all of our readers of how to do things better. We share our process, we share our culture, we share how to design, we share all all these things for so that they can take it on their own and make 
things better. And then with filament, we had the aha. We're like, wait a second, this is for people making their websites better and these simple tools. And what it was born out of is that design is hard. It's very hard. It's hard for us. We've been designing our new website for six months now. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. And it's expensive because of that. And uh, we feel that design should be more democratized because it's the end users that are losing in this. So you go to a website, it's difficult to use. You want to do business with these people, but it's just too confusing, right? Um, and so we want to create these tools so it's easier to have good design and ultimately impacts the user, right? So the, the thought process is if we help people uh, make their users happy, their users are going to take care of those website owners. They're going to do business with them or follow them or share, whatever it is. So that's the idea of filament that was born. And so the, the friction that we noticed is that um, as we do a lot of this work for our clients, an activation rate, which means if you have a, a web app that you have to drop code for, a good one is like 50%, which means everybody you sign up, you lose half just automatically. And then you have all the rest of the funnel you have to deal with at that point. So dropping code's really tough. And the other thing is that that curation you hit on as well is what apps do I use? How do I improve my site? You know, there's not a, a good source of what the best in class apps are. And there's not necessarily guidance. There's great, you know, um, sites like growthhackers.com where you can go to and you can learn a lot of this stuff, but no one kind of brings it all together for you. So our hope was to, to help both users, uh, website owners, uh, to be able to, to move those apps into their site, help the web app creators to get those apps installed more easily, and then ultimately the users to have a better experience. Yeah. And, and so people can go to, is it filament.io, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And they can just register straight away and, and start using those. And yep, completely it's, it, free. And it's really drag and drop, isn't it? It's, um, I mean, I've used it. I've got it on one of my sites. There um, is one little dirty secret, which is you do have to drop our code once, but then you don't have to do it ever again. And if you're on WordPress, there is a WordPress plugin that, that negates that. Right. Cool. Um, so let's just talk a bit about um, maybe the startup community in general, you know, because since, you know, I came to San Diego um, re- really from knowing it from a marketing perspective, you know, and I found like a huge sort of thriving hub of uh, startups either starting in San Diego or moving some of them, you know, further south. Um, and I, I've kind of always believed, you know, you don't need to be in the valley to to have a great startup, you know. Um, but, you know, I can see things really, really accelerating here. Um, is that what you see now? Do you see how has it changed over the past sort of year, I guess, or two years? Yeah, well, I can tell you how it's changed over the past ten. Right, <laughs> I'm the old guy here. Uh, so you know, in the early 2000s, uh, it was pretty much non-existent. You know, you had um, in the you know you had Divix, uh, which was pretty great, and, and you know uh, the rising of. Um, uh, Active.com, which went public uh, not too long ago and was recently purchased, as well as uh, ProFlowers and those guys as well, uh, provide commerce. But there were others, aside from um, those larger organizations, we didn't have much going on. And as the Web 2.0 movement came, we had a nice surge of new startups happening, but had zero capital. And capital was a, was a little drier in general at that point in time, and um, it was even harder to go travel to get that capital to actually build stuff. And stuff cost more to build, 
you know, if you were to think about it. So you'd have to go raise a good amount of capital and then take that capital back to San Diego. And a lot of the VCs didn't like that. And so there was a little start stop that happened during that Web 2.0 period uh, that was that was frustrating. But we do have a few startups in town like Take Lessons and Mogul that, that came out of that era, as well as Dust.com that started as a Sicily was sold to Salesforce recently. Um, and now you have a whole nother set of, um, I guess the game has changed, right? So now you have uh, people using AngelList and, and raising their seed in angel capital. Uh, you have people actually finding um, funds here in town or, or raising capital from outside of town and a, a lot more fast moving startups. Uh, before we were a lot of bootstrap people, which is great. I've been bootstrapped my whole career, um, but it's a long road. That's why I'm a 12 year old startup. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so it definitely is the, it's like the third coming and I think uh, I think this time it's got legs. And the, the thing that was missing the whole time was community support. One mm-hmm. of the challenges about San Diego, it's a beautiful place to live. It's so beautiful that uh, it's really hard to get people to come together. Mm-hmm. It's very spread out. Everything is 15 minutes away, but it seems like everybody is always 15 minutes away and not yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, sometimes it's hard to get people together. It's hard to keep them together. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the surf when the surf is good, <laughs> Code, yeah. coding isn't happening. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I see that changing, and I see the community of entrepreneurs supporting it, which is really great because you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't depend on uh, some type of marketing or PR organization here in town. You don't depend on capital. You just depend on yourselves. And I think that's the only only way we're going to be able to strive or, or, or thrive in this this community here. Right. Okay. And um you know, so I, uh, and the, I also see Santa Monica, you know, um, coming up as well. In fact, I think I looked at yesterday, um, someone sent me a link for, uh, like a mapping tool called represent. Have you seen that? Uh, yeah. And, and I think, and I think, do you still run like the San Diego, um, hub or website for startups? I used I to do startup SD. Right. But, um, yeah, I've relinquished that as it became too much <laughs> right. to handle. So, so we, whoever's doing the, the hub, if you like, or the online hub should look at that as well. Because what, what represent managed to do is, and I think it's just open source code, but it, it just instantly maps on Google Maps all the startups in the LA area. And so all of a sudden you've got a complete map of, you know, Santa Monica is very dense, um, a lot of it happening there. And I think that'd be good to have that type of thing, yeah. you know, in, uh, in SD as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's very, very uh, cool tool. And there's a site called Startup san diego.com or co startup san diego.co that they've been amassing all, a database of all the startups right there as well so that's a good place to check out yeah all right I'll, maybe i'll touch base them get them to do that because i think it's i don't think it's complicated to do this because it's open source right, right. so yeah absolutely um and i'm notorious for hacking code <laughs> we need more you know, people like you <laughs> well i don't know you know when especially talking to someone you know at, at the the top of the design world you know i've Sometimes I feel guilty about some of my sites, which are just generally hacked together using WordPress and the most good-looking theme I can find on Code Canyon, and put those together, and you know, and that—that's my site. 
But the great thing about that is you always have to start someplace. I mean, quite mm. often we'll talk with people and we'll say, you know, you're not ready for the most polished design yet. Yeah. Just get it out there, get it working, you know, grow it. And then when you get traction, that's when you start really investing in the design. Yeah. If it is amazingly designed, it doesn't mean that people will come, yeah. right? It helps. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> you know, there's still, unfortunately, sometimes the best design, aesthetic design in the world doesn't always perform the best either. Yeah. And so it's, it's really about taking that massive imperfect action, as they say, right? Just get something out yeah. there, first of all, and then improve on it. I love Reed Hoffman's quote around, if he, I think he said, if it doesn't look like complete shit, you, you ship too late. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so much truth in that. Um, yeah, so uh, on the, the startup side, we're also talking about age, you know, and, and how that's changing um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, we touched on that earlier. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Um, I feel young. I think I uh, I think we're both pretty young in all consideration of the uh, of the idea. But, yeah. Um, yeah, we were just mentioning about how uh, venture capital um, is looking to invest in younger and younger people um, based on the drive, and I guess maybe their ability to survive on ramen and Red Bull. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, just not, not having the family, not being tied down, and just being able to hustle. Mm. Because ultimately at the end of the day, they want to get 10, 20, 100 X, uh, out of what they're looking to do. And, and, you know, as you get older, I think your priorities change a little bit as they should. Uh, or maybe you found a bit of success already and your ambitions are different. You, you learn to slow down and appreciate life passing you by as opposed to staying up all night to try to push, push the code live or, Mm. um, get coverage in a tech blog. And you kind of realize like, that's not the stuff that necessarily matters. So hopefully I'm not talking VCs out of investing in me, but, (laughs) um, I think that that is, I think there's, that is a paradigm. I don't think it's necessarily true. Um, I think on the other side of the other hand, um, I feel like I've personally become at 38, a more mature leader. And I've been able to sit back and make my mistakes. I still make a lot of them. Um, can catch them a little sooner now. And I can be more calm, you know, and, and, and learn how to actually put a better product out there. And that the product is made by a team. Mm. And the team are people. They're humans. <laughs> and they're not human capital. They're actually humans just like you and I. And to invest in the culture and invest in them mm. is first and foremost uh, our priority. And then what happens after that's amazing. You know, you have happy people that are passionate about what they do. The product just takes off, becomes so much better. And it's not a matter of how long you work. It's a matter of where your headspace is at, you know, yeah. how well you work together as a team. It's not the, the team necessarily that practices the longest or that stuff studies the hardest or wor- that works the hardest is the people that work the best together. Um, and so we've invested a ton in culture. And I think that's hard. If you're a young person, it's really hard to be able to lead a company to do those types of things. So you don't have that experience. You haven't had um, all of those mistakes that, yeah. that force yeah. you to learn. You can't read about that stuff in a book, yeah. really. And you don't understand the life experience element of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know, I also see another angle out of that as well, especially, and maybe this applies more to bootstrappers, but, um, you know, I also think when, when you go through the family phase, um, and, you know, you need to feed the kids and you need to send them to school and all that, then another sort of drive comes out. So, you know, I think for the, for the, 
for want of a better phrase, you know, the more mature entrepreneur or the person who is leaving their corporate job and setting up on their own, I, I think they should never be overlooked because I think they have, they're, they're more hungry, you know, and, you know, they've, they've burnt their bridges. They have to deliver. Yeah. Um, and I think often some entrepreneurs who pivot a lot probably come out of that sort of world, you know, because, you know, the, it, it's not about the product. Um, it's about the person who can actually make it happen. Yeah. And often, you know, I know for, for myself, I need to push up the, you know, at the backside sometimes just to get stuff done, you know, and having the family driver yeah. is always there, you know. Um, so it's I interesting think, to be motivated by your mind and the family as opposed to other things that could be motivating yeah. you when you're young and distracting you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. And I think uh, naturally you also want to make a greater impact later in life. And to make a greater impact, you got to do pretty big things. And I, I, I think as opposed to just you know creating a product that has a ton of users, you want to create a product that creates world change. And there's a lot of value in that too. So. I think that's another thing that's that that goes overlooked at times as well. Yeah, absolutely. and it's interesting. I, I don't know that the, I can't remember this specifically, but I think um, um, there was a, a series of uh, startups. I think it might have been Twitter, might have been one of them that were started with people thirty-five and over. So there's a list out there someplace um, uh, that we can maybe put in the show notes. Sure. Um, and it's pretty amazing to see which companies were started later in life yeah. by a lot of these organizations. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's any data on that. In collectively it'd be really interesting yeah you know because um, I, I know for and we, we touched on this earlier but I know I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur and that's probably why I always worked for startups when I was much younger um, and you know the last one took a lot longer to, to mature to sell etc um, and the problem with being in the startup for so long is, you know, when you have the family commitment and, and kids and schooling and all that sort of stuff, all of a sudden, sudden your committed um, outgoings, you know, is so high, it's really difficult to, to make that leap, you know. And I think, um, for, for you know, to, for people who are in their desk jobs, who want to leave, you know, it is possible to do that, you know, and you, you can do it. And it just takes, you know, that, Action, you know, that step to actually get out and do it. Um, and a and you, supportive and family. Will. Yeah. <laughs> Not too risk adverse. <laughs> yeah. I know. Try, try persuading your wife you wanted to go to San Diego. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there could be worse places to go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so, Chuck, we're coming to the end, really. And, you know, and I've really enjoyed our chat. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, so we've got filament IO we talked about. We talked a lot about design culture, um, and the, the, the culture of employees and, and motivating your staff and your team and everything. Um, what, you know, for people who were thinking of, you know, starting up and everything, is there any sort of tips or any, um, any advice you can give them in terms of what's important to get right? Um, in terms of their new app or their website or anything like that? Yeah, you know, uh, I'd probably summarize a few things I've said, which is one is, you know, make sure it is something that you're passionate about or a problem that you want to fix as opposed to just a market opportunity. I think that's number one. I think that misery loves company. 
<laughs> and I think if you if you have an opportunity to work with someone that you trust, I think that's pretty great. Um, you know, there are I've worked with friends, and it's uh, right now my my uh, business partner is a friend, and it's um, there's ups and downs. Um, I wouldn't trade anything for in the world. I trust him more than anybody else, other than my wife, um, and that's been phenomenal. So to to be able to share that with someone you care about, to to, to work on things, these things, and to not be alone. Um, when you're alone as an entrepreneur, it's it's tough, right? Because <clears throat> people will not understand uh, what it's like to be you uh, within the organization. Other entrepreneurs will understand, but you only get to see them every once in a while. Yeah. So um, you know, find find a, a partner in crime. I would say, if at all possible, and if you can be different, you know, be technical and creative, or vision and marketing, or operationally sound, or something like that. Don't be the same uh, because uh, it's those differences that create your strengths. So, and I would say that, and then I would say, you know, build your foundation on culture. Um, If you have an opportunity to put, if you have a great team, that great team can come up with an idea. It's not, ideas are so cheap, right? Every time we take a shower, we get a new idea. (laughs) So it's about finding a team. It's about aligning the values and the culture of that team and about making that idea everybody's because that's what'll be executed even better. Um, sometimes it's hard to start with a team because there's no capital to do so. But, uh, you know, I think if you're going to have be inspirational, it's a good place to start to get people to kind of believe in you and start start there. It's a great, great way to, I think, start a company on that foundation itself. And then, um, you know, I think there's a period when you when you start a new company or a new product. Um, I'm sure it's like the hero's journey, right? There's highs and lows. Um, there are times where you just need to keep on pushing and there's times where you just need to kind of shut it down and try something else. So I, I don't believe in, you know, um, waging, you know, the war for years and years on end. If you're not seeing results, it's like the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again and and expecting different results. So I, I, I just go out there and as they say, fail fast, um, Look, be excited about making mistakes because you're going to learn from it. And when you get those wins, just keep following that path. Right. That's brilliant. Chuck, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I found it really exciting and interesting interview. Um, and if people need to get hold of you, it's via digitaltelepathy.com. Yeah, it's dtelepathy.com. Dtelepathy. And, um, yeah, we uh, recommend everybody takes a look at our blog. We try to give away all our secrets on it. <laughs> so you can sign up via email. Or, and if you want to say hi, just hit the contact button. Brilliant. Chuck, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, you can get the show notes from disruptware.com. And if you are not a subscriber and you're listening to this in the iTunes store, then please visit disruptware.com and sign up. That's it for this episode. Look out for next week's show. I'm Paul Clifford, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Disruptware podcast. Check us out on the web at disruptware.com.